Welcome to Insights, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Insights is an audio podcast that provides perspective on the opportunities and uncertainties facing investors today. Today's episode is Factor-Based Investing and is for institutional and professional investors. I'm John O'Shea, an institutional client advisor, and with me today are my J.P. Morgan Asset Management colleagues, Yaz Ramahi, Chief Investment Officer for our Quantitative Beta Strategies, and Garrett Norman, Client Portfolio Manager in our Multi-Asset Solutions team. Welcome to Insights. Thank you. Glad to be here. Factors and factor-based investing are playing an increasing role across a range of activities for institutional asset owners. Before we go any further, can you just define what a factor is for the world? Sure. A factor fundamentally is a source of return. And traditionally, when we thought about asset classes, we thought about asset classes as the basic building blocks of return. And increasingly, we've understood that actually there are different sources of economic return. And sometimes you can actually break an asset class into different factors. How do you find these things? It's essentially about an economic risk premium. So when you're thinking about equities. You know, we thought about equities as an asset class, but increasingly we understood that you can break that down into the value premium, the size premium. Think about the size premium as an example. What it is saying is, well, there is a different risk attached to small cap stocks. They're more highly levered to the business cycle. As a result, they're more risky. So you expect a positive expected return simply by being exposed to the small cap premium that is different from the market premium. So if I think of the world of securities investing as an ocean, and you have a net, and you're looking for factors, and you take that net across the world of securities in the ocean, and you'll find common fish that are swimming together in a school, in your case, small cap securities, you sift through the ocean, you come up with a net of securities that behave together, and it might be labeled small cap. Yeah, so that's an interesting analogy, because to use your analogy, if you actually caught lots of schools of fish, that might be your asset class. But actually, now that we approach investing from a factor perspective, we're able to segregate the different schools more accurately. Great. So they're being used for risk management, asset allocation. Some factor investing is just pure investment strategy oriented. So our listeners can understand the differences in implementation. Garrett, Yaz, can you each describe your teams and then talk about how you incorporate factor-based techniques in your investment approach. Garrett, why don't you begin? Sure. So in the multi-asset solutions group, we're thinking about factors from two important perspectives, one of which is on the return side. So as Yaz was mentioning, we can use these factors as compensated sources of risk to enhance overall portfolio return. We can look at this either in terms of complementing existing investment exposures, where you might offset certain biases that managers are taking, Or we can think of this from a pure replacement perspective, where if you can access factors in a liquid, transparent, low-cost fashion, you can improve the overall result. The other lens that we think of from factors is the risk dimension, where utilizing some of the tools and analytics that Yaz's team has built over the years, we're able to better understand our investor portfolios from a factor perspective and see what is driving incremental risk across the portfolio. Anything you would add to that in terms of how your team uses factor-based investing? 
Well, so I think the outline Garrett gave around how multi-asset solutions would approach factor-based investing really highlights how an investor should think about factors in their portfolio. From the perspective of the quant data beta strategies, we're focused on actually creating the vehicles to allow investors to access these factors, as well as the tools to help them analyze their portfolios from a factor perspective. So for us, it's a two-way dialogue where Yaz's group can think of the best ways to build these building blocks. On the other hand, we can also provide input in terms of what we're looking for to complement existing portfolios. So I think the idea generation can come from either angle. Now, the investment industry as a whole has yet to settle on a common definition for the term factor-based investing. Some of the categories that we've created include smart beta or strategic beta, alt beta, risk parity. Yes, can you just spend a minute on how you would define these different terms? Sure. I think fundamentally when we think about strategic beta, strategic beta is about using factors to create an efficient long-only capture of a traditional risk premium. So when we're thinking about the equity risk premium, Strategic beta equity would be about creating an alternative equity index. That is a more efficient way of capturing the equity premium, i.e. higher Sharpe ratio, so achieving similar return with a smoother ride. Alternative beta is very different because it's actually long-short in nature. And so alternative beta is actually, you're still using similar concepts around factors, but this time you're disaggregating hedge fund returns and looking at capturing specific hedge fund styles using factors, such as equity market neutral or merger arbitrage or global macro. Let me stay with you, Yaz. It's no secret that the global financial crisis and the resulting period of low returns has been a strong impetus for institutional investors to think about the way they construct portfolios. Some are taking action on a more fundamental level, re-engineering their portfolios as they seek what hopefully are deeper insights into risk and returns. You've done a lot of research around this, around the evolution of beta and the impact of factor investing. Can you talk about what you found? Sure. So I think the interesting thing here is that traditionally when people think about their asset allocation, they're thinking about equities, bonds, maybe a few other asset classes Mm -hmm. that you add in, but you're fairly constrained in terms of the number of asset classes. And given the outlook, for example, I mean, you mentioned low rates, given the outlook for fixed income, with rising rates, you're not going to get the capital gains you had in the past. Obviously, the carry is also much lower. And so in looking at sources of differentiated return, mm. diversifying strategies, that's really when factors really comes into its own. Because the understanding that actually all of these factors have their own economic basis and therefore their own cycle that's uncorrelated to traditional asset classes At the portfolio level, the diversification is actually very powerful. Yeah, it's a good point. Well, Garrett, for you, as part of the multi-asset solutions team, your goal is hopefully to broaden the range of asset allocation decisions. To date, traditional decisions in asset allocation have been, for example, relative value trades between developed markets or emerging markets or across the U.S., Europe, Japan, The team's research focus over the last year has been how to expand the range of asset allocation decisions to include different factor tilts. Can you describe what your team is seeing? Sure. I think I want to build on some of what we discussed earlier in terms of our thoughts that the greatest portfolio benefits can be realized when you're taking an integrated investment approach 
that's looking across a broad set of return sources, both relative value in nature across sectors, but also within specific asset classes themselves. And I think before I touch on the factor tilts themselves, I'd like to discuss the difficulty in incorporating factor strategies into an overall investment framework. Historically, this has presented challenges to investors across three main areas. The first is that there's generally a lack of a universal definition on how you're constructing a factor and what that factor exposure looks like. Another element is that many of the performance histories of factors are more recent in nature. So it can be difficult to anchor what assumptions yeah. you're looking for from a risk and return perspective. I'd say a third is that it, it can be difficult to forecast the factor performance on a short to intermediate term basis, which I can uh, discuss later in the session. To speak more concretely to your question, we've been actively researching this area for a long time. So within multi-asset solutions, we incorporate factors in assessing relative value across asset classes, and that's been part of our approach for over 20 years. Speaking to looking within asset classes, we've been investing with these underlying building blocks back to 2009 and have done research for many years before then. So I think understanding what these factors can look like in practical, implementable terms is something that we have a unique perspective on and something that we're continuing to build through. So looking at our own asset allocation process, now that we have expanded the window of building blocks through working with Yaz's quantitative beta strategies team, we're looking to add to the breadth of decisions we can make in tactical asset allocation. This can be difficult, as I mentioned earlier. So for one component, looking into timing your allocation to factors will naturally increase portfolio turnover. And here it's really important to understand how you're accessing these factors themselves. So on a pure capture basis, it might be more attractive to capture factors in smaller cap names where factor spreads are wider or opportunities are greater. Hmm. However, transaction costs in this segment of the market can be greater. So if you're trying to introduce a timing approach with a construction that dips down into smaller cap names, it can be complicated from the transaction cost perspective. Another important lens is thinking about market regimes. Research has shown that certain factors perform better in certain parts of the market cycle, so early recovery, through crises, in stable periods. However, when you look through the data and really understand the, the standard error or the range of outcomes within any of these market regimes, it's a very wide error bars. So in other words, there's a lot of noise to that signal. And I think we would argue that the best approach to thinking about factors from an asset allocation perspective is to integrate many inputs. So look at your factor spreads, look at factor valuations, look at where you are in the economic cycle and where you think you're headed, and also integrate that with qualitative insights on what are driving factors themselves. We've recently been in a regime where there's been a search for income which might place precedence on dividend yield as one of the value subcomponents. I think understanding what can be driving the specific factors and relating that back to the economic cycle can lead to stronger results. You mentioned working with Yaz's team. If we bring it back to the analogy from earlier, you are the fisherman that's researching for all the different factors that might be available to the world. How do you two, your two teams, 
interact and share the research that you've come up with? So we actually operate a joint research process. So on a quarterly basis, there's a research summit that is run jointly between quantitative beta strategies and multi-asset solutions. And the teams, we work on joint projects around factors. Obviously, from our perspective, it's about creating vehicles to access these factors, but we also work on how best to asset allocate between factors. And clearly that is the basis for MAS's research as well. And so there's a lot of overlap there. Yeah, and just to build on that, I think we can, in the multi-asset groups, provide outlook on what we're looking for from quantitative beta strategies. Hmm. So if our economic and global strategy team has a certain view of the world and we're looking to access a specific factor that perhaps it exists through our current active managers, but we might be able to implement in a cheaper and more liquid fashion, we can then work with the quantitative beta strategies group over the research summit cycles on developing how exactly to design said building block to fit that need in our portfolios. And to add to that, we do a lot of work on understanding factor spreads. You know, Garrett mentioned how when you're thinking about factors from an asset allocation perspective, you need to understand you know, the extent to which it may perform in different cycles. But as he said, it's very difficult to really link factors to specific cycles. But what's much stronger is actually the spread effect. And that kind of data, we generate a lot of analytics and a lot of data to help them think through how factors are likely to perform. Can you guys think of an instance where you mentioned earlier, Garrett, it's a little bit hard to foresee these, all of the different factors in different economic scenarios, risk scenarios. Can you think of an instance where you had a little bit of interchange and debate about what was a minimally acceptable length of track record for a factor identification, yet you wanted to use it or didn't want to use it? Well, so actually that's a really good question because that kind of goes back to the fundamental definition of a factor. I think the most important thing around a factor is the economic basis. So when you think about the research into factors, into understanding factor-based investing, I mean, it goes back a long time, you know, in terms of our understanding of, let's uh, say, we, we use the equity example and then when equity beta was first defined. Mm -hmm. So if actually, in the beginning, if you go back to 1975, it was actually equity as an asset class was defined as a factor. Yeah. Because prior to that, the idea that you can get a positive return simply by exposing yourself to a wide range of stocks, it did not make sense to investors, right? Of course, today we take that concept of beta completely for granted. Some people continue to outperform the market simply by giving a small cap bias or a value bias. Increasingly, we understood that actually those are factors in their own right. And so with time, we've refined our definition of factors. And of course, I mean, we're focusing on the equity example here, but that applies to other asset classes as well. And so the most important thing in defining factor is understanding the economic basis of what is driving that return. Mm. So it's not about finding some empirical data that looks like there's a positive return, but rather much more important than the empirical side is actually the economic side. And I think from the track record perspective, when we're working with the quantitative beta strategies group, we don't have a predefined period that we need to see seasoning from the investment strategies. I think we take a lot of comfort from the fact that they've been able to implement factors across different asset classes, long only and long short in nature for over eight years. Hmm. When we look at designing a new factor that might be showing outcomes from a back-tested performance stream, we know that this group has experience on the implementation costs and how to actually capture the factors in the market. So we've talked a lot about factors. Let's talk about clients. They are ultimately important to us. 
In your discussions with investors, what are some of the perceived benefits for clients when approaching factor-based investing? So from a client perspective, what we've seen is investors have increasingly been looking at their portfolios from a factor perspective. And so even if they're actually asset class based, they still want to map their asset class investment allocation into factors because then they actually get a different lens into their portfolio and they can see to what extent their allocation is actually balanced or maybe they find that they have large concentration in a particular factor that they hadn't appreciated. I mean, one example, let's say you were allocating to equities, credit, bonds and throw real estate in there sure just for real estate estate. (laughs) so when you actually translate that into a factor lens when you think about convertible bonds convertible bonds actually have a little bit of credit they have a little bit of small cap and they have a little bit of equity so rather than think of each one as an asset class in isolation what you actually need to do is map them against the underlying factors you're getting so that you can see that maybe actually you end up being imbalanced because you've doubled up on the credit component or the small cap component. Mm. So that's the importance of looking at your portfolio from a factor perspective. It's ensuring that actually, even if you started from an asset class perspective, you want to ensure that you're balanced from a factor perspective as well. Yeah, and I'd say we've seen a lot of this on the institutional side here in multi-asset solutions where some investors are going as far as to redefine some of their asset allocation buckets into more outcome-oriented terms. So we're starting to see strategies for diversification purposes or defensive purposes or crisis risk purposes, rather than becoming reliant on those asset class labels to provide diversification. And I think what's powerful, really, in addition to understanding the risk decompositions across a portfolio, is the implications this can have for institutional investment staff in terms of breaking down silos that investors are often plagued with and starting to have communication and dialogue across different areas of the portfolio. So I think that's a perhaps under-realized benefit to the push towards factor-based investing. Maybe one additional point I would mention that we hit on a little earlier is just the element of reduced cost. So in many of these strategies, given the systematic implementation, we're able to capture factor exposure cheaply and in liquid fashion. And a lot of our institutional investors are facing significant fee pressures Mm. where if you can capture an equity growth premium or even looking down into the alternative beta lens and capture source of alternative investment returns in a cheaper fashion, I think this can be powerful. Not many turn away a cheaper implementation. But that brings me to something I know a lot of people are wondering about, implementation. What are some of the challenges of implementing a factor-based investment program? Yaz, let me ask you, how do people bucket this? That's an interesting question. I think because what we found, you know, as people first start to step into the factor world, I guess, Because fundamentally, from a kind of conceptual basis, factor-based investing is meant to be an alternative to traditional asset class-based investing. So in other words, it's meant to be your entire portfolio. You think about your entire portfolio from a factor perspective and then map it back to asset classes. But in fact, some investors actually do that. We see that with the high-end institutions in the Nordics, in Canada, and at the higher end in the United States as well. But you still have a lot of people who are anchored in asset class terms. And the issue there is that for those investors, what they often do is they take smaller steps. They think about almost in their alternatives bucket. And so factor-based portfolios 
whether they be long only or I mean the long short ones the alternative beta I guess that fits more naturally within your alternatives bucket because actually when we're talking about alternative beta and long short factors we are actually talking about alternatives to hedge fund investing but when we're thinking about long only factor investing those are often a lot more clearly traditional in nature but also an alternative to your 60-40 allocation you mentioned risk parity earlier. Risk parity portfolios that take advantage of some of these ideas are often put in an alternatives allocation rather than thought of more holistically. And I think that's really the next step that a lot of institutions need to take is that actually when you're thinking about factors, think about it at the whole portfolio level. I'm going to ask you the same question, Garrett. From your experience on a team that builds portfolios yet works with clients, what are you seeing as some of the challenges for clients with regard to implementing factor-based investment approaches? Yeah, I think one of the challenges for investors is trying to determine to what extent they want to complement or replace existing exposures in the portfolio. So, you know, as we've mentioned earlier, the factors themselves are not a new thing. The implementable capture of factors is something that's newer. So for investors that have active exposure through a variety of asset classes, I think step one is really understanding what factors they're already sourcing and where is alpha being built on top of factor exposures. And that's where we'll rely, um, as I mentioned earlier, on some of our risk factor tools to really understand how active managers can be split across these different paradigms. I think that gets to the basis for understanding how from a more bottom up perspective, factors can be relevant to a portfolio. But I don't think we should forget some of the just important notions that Yaz was mentioning and that we've discussed earlier on how factors should help investors think about overall portfolios from a risk perspective. So for us, it's trying to integrate that decision both from the bottom up implementation vehicles, but also how that fits in more broadly to asset allocation and risk management decisions. So factor investing remains broad and complex, but we've seen institutional investors increasingly use it to enhance risk management, maybe to implement investment strategies and manage portfolios holistically. Yes, Garrett, let me start with you. Yes, any concluding thoughts to what we've discussed? Well, so I guess one question that we do often get asked is around factor crowding. Mm -hmm. So when we think about factors, I guess because they're newer than asset classes, people often think, well, if everyone starts thinking about factor terms, what does that mean for the factor itself? And what's interesting about that is often the way they phrase the question is, can factors be arbitraged out? And I think the issue there is that when we think about an asset class, when we think about the equity risk premium, do we ask, can equities be arbitraged out? No, what we ask is, are equities expensive or are they cheap? And I think that is a very important point that the same applies to these other factors because they are fundamentally some kind of economic risk that you're being compensated for. So you may be overpaying for that risk, the risk is expensive, Mm. or you are capturing a return because the risk is fairly valued or cheap. And I think that's the important thing to understand is that these factors, they will go through the same cycles of being expensive and cheap just as traditional factors. Any final thoughts from you, given everything we put together here? Yeah, I think just to build on that, I think the factor investing world is certainly rapidly evolving. And I think that just highlights the importance for clients in partnering with trusted institutions in helping them understand what these benefits can be from a portfolio perspective and how to implement and bring them into the real world. Well, Yaz, Garrett, thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank My you. My pleasure. 
Thank you for joining us today on JP Morgan Insights. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes and on our website. Recorded on March 3rd, 2017. The views contained herein are not to be taken as an advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction. Nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production, but no warranty of accuracy is given, and no liability in respect of any error or omission is accepted. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks, the value of investments, and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield may not be a reliable guide to future performance. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other EU jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL. In Hong Kong, by JF Asset Management Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited. In India, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management India Private Limited. In Singapore, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited. In Taiwan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited. In Japan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan. The Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type II Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency. Registration number, Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, number 330. In Korea, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Korea Company Limited. In Australia, to wholesale clients only, as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001. CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited. ABN, 5514-3832080. AFSL, 376919. In Brazil, by Banco J.P. Morgan S.A. In Canada, for institutional clients' use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada, Incorporated, And in the United States, by J.P. Morgan Distribution Services, Incorporated, And J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated, Both members of FINRA, SIPC, and J.P. Morgan Investment Management Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2017, J.P. Morgan Chasen Company. All rights reserved.